On this episode of Flock of Seagals, we tackle Army of One, starring the one and only Nick Cage, directed by the mastermind behind Borat and the dictator. Army of One, Flock of Seagals. Go! Hey guys, welcome to Flocks of Seagulls. This is our second post-pivot goddamn episode. And holy smokes, I didn't think that... I thought we were at the very bottom of the swamp. We're not? We, well, with Seagull, I thought we were at the very bottom of the swamp. Like the worst of the worst. Not so much. (sighs) Not so much at all. I thought, like, it would give us some breathing room to explore different movies that are shot competently and things like that. I'm trying to say this as a way of apologizing to the rest of the group for suggesting this movie. Because <laughs> uh, Army of One, not great. This episode is going to me be me exercising my feelings about this movie, casting them out as if they were demons. But let's explain what this podcast is. Flock of Seagulls, we used to be all about Steven Seagal. Now we are about giving eh, those 8 to 20 to $30 million movies that maybe skirt by the public eye, the critical viewing they really, 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 really do not deserve. <laughs> I'm Riley Byrne. With me, as always, is Michael. Hello. Dan. Hi there. And Tony. Mm. And we watched Army of One. Oh, we watched it. <laughs> did you guys I, actually finish it? I'm surprised I did. It was for an hour and a half movie. It felt like two and a half hours. It felt like we spent all of those 31 days with him. There I was, I watched part of the movie on 1.5 times speed. <laughs> oh, you mean a speed which have made his incredibly nasal voice sound even more? <laughs> it was amazing. Yeah, like, like uh, Elvin and the Chipmunks. <laughs> yeah. The amazing thing about that is at the end of the film, they show the person that Nick Cage is doing an impression of. doesn't really sound like he's talking like this so, all the time. I'm glad that you brought that up. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, went on the Wikipedia page to try and, you know, dig up some nuggets for this podcast. It is not mentioned anywhere that this is based on a true story. And in the film, they say that till the end, right? Uh, in the beginning, like kind of opening narration thing, this, they say this is kind of sort of based on a true story. I can't help but feel they're kind of burying the lead on this one. They did say, like, it's a true story, but the characters are changed, the details are changed, everything about it has changed, except there are people in the world. But, it, it, like, all of you assumed that was a joke, right? Because it's, I, it, it, it's Nick Cage in, in the USA hang glide, and you're like, oh, this is fucking... I, that was the only reason I kept through it, was like, all right, this has to be somewhat accurate to something so you did I, I bought into it yeah riley did like did you think it was based on your story? i had heard of this story beforehand oh, sure. i knew oh, that really? this film was going into production hmm. uh, sh- we should explain what this film is about before we start speculating on the trueness of the story sure uh so nick cage plays what's his name gary faulkner gary faulkner a man who went to pakistan at least once, also went to Israel. Yes. Um, to try and track down Osama bin Laden. It, it explores like the 40 days from when he gets a mission from God to when he comes back somewhat defeated. And that's what the film is. And if you've got a movie where it's Nick Cage gets a message from God to go track down Osama bin Laden, you're geared up for... One of the best experiences of your life, good or bad movie. It should be some of the greatest things that you ever see. And it's not at all. I mean, I think my the only review I need to give of this movie is that about two thirds away through it, I took a 15 minute break to do dishes. <laughs> and that was more exciting than the movie, right? 
I mean, they'd been piling up, so it was a bit of an adventure yeah. to get them all out of the way. I bet. It was like more exciting than hearing that fucking voice for another At second. At the beginning, it really did sound like if Nicolas Cage was asked to do a Trump impression. Oh. Like his voice was just like, and the way he was talking, it just didn't make any sense. I seriously thought something that, thought there was something wrong with the audio on the version <laughs> I was watching. Until I realized, oh, the other actors aren't talking like this. This is just him. Yeah. Like, the one thing I will say is that I'm a massive Nick Cage fan. I have this, like, morbid fascination with seeing him unintentionally, for sure, tank these straightforward movies because his performance is so ridiculous. It's almost like he's he's undermining like the, the artifice of cinema because everyone else is playing it so straight, but he's just like like completely off the rails. Even after something like like the Bad Lieutenant Port of Call, even this was like it was too over the top. Like it, it, it was awkward how ridiculous he was trying to be. Like you know, considering he makes like the what four movies a year, I've probably seen like thirty Nicolas Cage films. But like, it's fascinating to see him. Just like torpedo these big budget films with his crazy performances. But this one was like, I got him, it was a little much. He was almost very openly making fun of the guy he was playing. But also the guy that he was playing wanted it to be him playing it. So it was kind of like a slap in the face, I thought, to like, yeah, oh for sure, like a weird dude. But he like made fun of him pretty openly for an hour and a half. But this guy was like, I want Nicolas Cage to play me. So you'd think there'd be... According to the film. According to the film. But, like, why would they make that up? Because it would be a good meta joke for the film. I I mean, it makes the most sense in the world to put it in there if you know it's going to be a bad movie. This film is one in a long trend of uh, something that's been going on in Hollywood for a while that is called retroscripting, which is basically there is a scene... The actors know the beginning and the end, and they need to navigate sort of a path in between those two. Judd Apatow has been sort of the the one who does this the best in his films, even though it's probably because he just stocks all of his rosters with a lot of comedians. When you put someone like Nick Cage and just ask him to improvise every scene, and he's the only person who is allowed to be... Nick Cage is known to everybody else in this film as the crazy friend. Mm. He's the crazy one from high school. He's Mm. the crazy one from the bar. He's the crazy one who challenges Marines to a knife fight. He's the crazy guy. And so he asked Nick Cage to improvise for an entirety of a movie, as you have uh, as Larry Charles, the director of this movie, did with uh, Sacha Baron Baron Cohen. Uh, for Bruno and Borat. Uh, Borat, he asked Nick Cage to do this, and you get a lot of scenes that are just, there's no purpose to them. Or there is a purpose to them, but it's a very lumpy purpose, and they didn't pay enough for editing, because there's a, you can tell that this is how this movie was assembled, which was like a lot of long takes of everybody just improvising, because of the way that the cuts work. There are so many small cuts in this movie where someone is holding something and then not holding it in the next scene. And this is something that I actually learned from looking up how Curb Your Enthusiasm, which Larry Charles also directs, executive produces, how they work on that show. The editors have a rule, which is cut on consonants. So when someone's about to say something with a C or a T or a ch or a K, you cut on those because it's easier to put the word together. Oh, that's really cool. So... And in those, like, as much as I dislike Cure Beer Enthusiasm because it's devoid of humor, they do do that well. They do do those cuts well, and they do assemble it. And there is an art into editing together, like, the best takes of the best parts of this. This just felt like a film where they had all the best parts, and they just didn't have time to assemble it into something that worked. It's very, very lumpy. I was watching this at work in the middle of the day, and the... You just want to say real quick where you work and... uh... How much do they pay you? And, and uh, <laughs> the, 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 the editing was so jarring, again, in a completely sober state that like, I honestly felt like I was hallucinating. It felt like it was edited by a Google algorithm. Yeah. 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 That's exactly it. And you can tell the way because there's only one character in this movie that works as a comedic person. 
And it's Rain Wilson reprising oh, Dwight Schrute. Yes. Yeah. He's the, because he does, you can see him setting up other characters in this movie the way that Dwight sets up Michael Schrute. Because that's Michael exactly. Uh, Michael Scott. Michael Scott, <laughs> because that's exactly how that uh, how their relationship worked. They were the only two people members of the office that were allowed to improvise, and so that's how they did it. Was it was just constantly throw out ideas and see which one catches, and it works when it's Steve Carell and Rain Wilson. It doesn't work when it's Rain Wilson and another guy who was a judge on The Good Wife. It doesn't work when it's Rain Wilson and Nick Cage on Dialysis. There's a lot to unpack in this movie, but let's start off with nick cage is Actually, a child let let's start off uh, giving a little background on our director uh larry charles staff writer for seinfeld for the first five seasons uh directed borat religious bruno the dictator uh you got to start on the uh arsenio hall show he actually wrote some of the more interesting Seinfeld episodes. Uh, he wrote the limo episode where George is mistaken as a uh, n- Nazi leader. Also, the opera episode where the uh, dude is a uh, uh, Pagliacci, the crazy clown. Yeah, I, I, I get all this and I get all this sort of hubbub around him because they say, oh, Larry Charles, black sense of humor. He's the darkest of all the Seinfeld writers. Why are you getting him to do this movie? Like, he's so dark that the girl with CP in this movie is not allowed to speak. Probably <laughs> still an extra. Couldn't get her SAG card for this one. Like, it's just, it's, it, 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 there's so many moments where it's like, if this, like, you should be laughing so hard at the absurdity of it that you're not noticing these rough cuts. And that's his style on a lot of these things where it's, if you like, if you're not completely grossed out or being like, "Oh my god, I can't believe I, they just did that," you're just sitting there waiting, like, "Why is this scene still happening?" It, and that's what this movie is. But it, I think that's a really interesting point. That like, it seems like he's kind of squandering all these moments that could have been dark, edgy, uh, upsetting, whatever, whatever. And like, on the whole, the movie's pretty vanilla when you think about yeah. like how bizarrely vanilla. Yeah, exactly. Be like if Doritos made a mystery flavor and they put like every single color in the rainbow in it and it was just vanilla. Yeah. Or like tapioca. Uh-huh. You say Doritos, this is Cool Ranch the movie. <laughs> cool Ranch the movie. And it's only vanilla. Yeah. So like the idea behind this movie is like as a kid, Gary Faulkner, after being bullied, was like contacted by God, played by Russell Brand, who was like the least interesting. I can see what the appeal people found in the idea of Russell Brand is God, but I've never found Russell Brand that entertaining. So it's just watching him go off. And I will say he's one of the only people in this film that I do find interesting. He is like, I also, I've always been on sort of the wary of Russell Brand train. I've never really liked him and stuff, but in this, I'm like, he's the only person who is going up against Nick Cage and utilizing Nick Cage for what he was in an interesting way. That's a really good point. There are, there are a number of scenes in the film when you're talking about like the only person who can kind of match Nick Cage, Nick Cage-ness, where like even seasoned actors, like uh, the, there's one scene where uh, Nick Cage is walking through a casino with uh, that kind of heavy guy. Will Sasso. Will Sasso. Uh, and then the, Paul Shear. Paul Shear. And like they look uncomfortable. Like they look so awkward and they're just like when is the fucking guy going to say cut because like Nick Cage is just, you know, like he's being embarrassing. And the idea that like these seasoned actors are that uncomfortable by him. But this is the other thing that's interesting about this film is like Larry Charles, you know, uh, executive producer, director of a lot of Curb Your Enthusiasm uh, episodes has got, he's got Paul Shear who did the league, which was sort of the spiritual successor to the format of Curb Your Enthusiasm, which is, but it was an ensemble piece of a bunch of different bad people all sort of interacting with each other, improvising. And then Wendy, she was officer Clementine in Reno 911. Yeah. Uh, Marcy Mitchell in this film. Oh, uh, Wendy McClendon Covey. Yeah. So you've got Wendy McClendon Covey, uh, who is she's coming from Reno 911 the the uh the state that sort of like all of Reno 911 is again that improvised sort of style but the problem with 
this film is there's only one crazy character, and that's Nick Cage's character. And yes. everybody else has to play the straight man to them because there's no room in the scene for anyone else to be sort of also a little bit crazy because Nick Cage takes everything to 11 immediately. It would be like an improv. Uh, again, going back to The Office where Steve Carell whispers or he tells everybody he's got a gun in the first two seconds of every scene because it's the most exciting thing you can do is to have a gun because everybody's on edge all of a sudden because the power dynamic shifts. Wait, did Steve, did Michael Scott do Michael that? Scott, yes. Okay, I was thinking like, yeah. did Steve Carell like whisper that at people before the beginning <laughs> of every take just to keep fucking poor Jenner Fisher really on edge? <laughs> Why do you think Oscar Nunez kissed him? Because uh, he had a gun. And that's one of those moments where it was interesting that that wasn't actually in the script that uh, Michael Scott kisses Oscar, but it was something that came about of it. Uh, in this film, it tries for that a lot of the time, but it just doesn't have those moments. It's a movie edited to have those crazy unscripted moments that are sort of off the cuff and interesting, but they just don't have them at, at, at any stage. And let's start with, I mean, we got to get started in the movie. Yeah. God comes to Nick Cage as a young, as a young person at, I'm assuming eight years old, Something like 12. That, sure. yeah. eight, 12 tells him. That I'll always protect you as long as you have this stick sword. sword that I'm giving you. And then you zoom forward. Many years later, like three decades. At least. And it says uh, 35 years. Yeah. Something like that. And, he... and Nick Cage looks like he's 65, but I guess he's 44. You know, the, that's an interesting point, actually. Like, if you think about you know, the Marcy character, that like, it looks like there's... A number of decades between them, yeah. You know, and, and so the idea that like uh they like went to school together or something, I, like I mean, he looks like he could be like her uncle. So <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's definitely a little strange right from the start. So Nick Cage has turned into the the thirty five years in between him being told by God that he is whatever into this. We're supposed to look at him as like this lovable asshole who loves America above all else and is willing to accept that other countries are good as well. But no, America is really. the like, best. He's shaming people in the hardware store for not buying American made products. Yeah, that that was a weird scene. But that like with really good ideas, like a pygmy couldn't make a toilet that ha carry like that's big enough for an American poop. Why would you why would you buy a pygmy made toilet? Yeah, like just uh, think about it, guys. That scene was really Ugh. weird, though, because it's like like it was clearly written to show that he has these sort of like puerile uh, ideas about uh, like nationalism and the quality of American goods and whatever, whatever. But that like, I mean, just using the word pygmy, uh, like, I mean, I don't really know a whole lot about uh, like toilet manufacturing. But I'm pretty fucking sure that anyone who would be scientifically designated as a pygmy has never made a toilet in their life. So that, that was a little what? weird. <laughs> That's not the issue I think we're supposed to be taking from this thing. The I, issue I'm not sure, though. I think maybe it's, maybe it's true. There's not a lot of pygmies out there. The interesting thing is this is his first scene in the hardware store. He lives. He's, he's, a, he's a handyman. He's a, he's a handyman squatter. Who lives on the job sites that he goes to. Uh, the first scene where we get to see some of him being giving off his personalities, him in this hardware store, in the first of what I'm going to call long tages, <laughs> where it should be a montage of just these little times where Nick Cage says something funny to people, like you would in a Christmas movie where Chris Kringle is coming and giving people exactly what they want and just being like, oh, you should do this. Oh, your wife secretly wants you to do the roast. Oh, you know what, children? Every every jelly bean's a red jelly bean if you really believe enough. And just like ping, 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 ping. The audience is supposed to relate to this person on a whole bunch of different levels in in like a series of seconds. This is a long tage where it's like Nick Cage enters the scene slowly, sees what somebody's doing, says that's not the right way to do something. Here is why America does it better. And then like four seconds afterwards of just him walking out of the shot. Okay. And it's terrible. It's terrible because they quick cut in between these little shots in the long tage. 
Did you just make up Long Taj? I just made up Long Taj. This is Terrific. the fucking best thing I've ever heard. Because it's exactly <laughs> what it is. TM, 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 TM. Damn it, Like that, that, Just so I'm understanding it properly. That like, uh, that like, in order for the bit to work, it has to be uh, implemented in this this protracted montage scene to make sure the audience gets the gag. The idea of these scenes is that he's like a guy who understands hardware on a level that other people don't. Or maybe he doesn't and he's trying to we're trying to see him actually not know stuff. But it's just so long. It's like there's an intro and an outro to every scene where it should just be cut to be like boom, 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 boom. And there's like a scene where he's talking to two Mexican laborers and he goes, I don't even know what you're making, but you're doing it wrong. But and so that should be just a quick cut, but it doesn't. It extends past that. So he's still walking past it and he had to walk up to them and there's no dialogue or anything like that. It's a long tosh. There's all these long what should be four second takes are like 10 second takes each. The problem is that you can see what they're trying to go for. And it just seems like they didn't spend enough money on the editing. It's the impression I get from this movie is that everyone is far, far too patient with this man. <laughs> like even, yeah, the, even No like, reason is given as to why everybody likes this person because all you're shown is his personality flaws. I'm very timid when it comes to social situations. I'm often the person who gets bowled over by like more intimidating people or people who would just have 20 times as much confidence as I do. But even I imagine like being put in the same room as this guy, I would just snap and tell him to shut the fuck up. And I'm really surprised that even United States Marines did not do that. And just like, I just could not imagine being around this man for more than a minute. I, I feel like you're hitting on something uh, like really interesting, it, like in regards to like the like the I guess the the recent career of uh, Nicolas Cage. <laughs> Basically that like like for whatever reason, I mean, like I honestly am consistently uh, uh, bewildered by it that like like he's allowed to completely uh destroy the you know the, the the willing suspension of disbelief in these sort of like illusionistic films that like his performance is so preposterous that like there's no way that you're going to like be that immersed into the role and i feel like like what we're sort of all sort of uh, alluding to here in regards to i guess the amount of uh, leeway he was given is that like that that sort of that that nick cage craziness like becomes sort of like 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 obnoxious and annoying when it's not confined within the realm of being a regular movie and when they're like oh yeah hey yeah, like like the whole basis of the film is going to be Let's let Nick Cage go crazy. And it's like that the, the, the thing that makes Nick Cage great is when he goes crazy within the confines of a regular narrative, within the confines of like like national treasure. And that like when it's like a, like a vaudeville performance where he's up there and he's like, he's just like going or like, crazy or like it's unbearable or like how he is in Bad Lieutenant Port of Call New Orleans, where he's just being goaded on from off screen by actual insane person Werner Herzog. But it is a collaborative effort. Here's the thing is like in all those things, he's he's been given a script or even on like face off. He and John Travolta were writing the script the day of. But then they were nailing their marks when they had to do this. This is just it's so sloppy. No one there's been no blocking established. No one knows where they should be in any part of his scene. So again, just just like like a Werner Herzog movie. But Werner Herzog allowed Nick Cage to appear from behind a door and just say, what are you doing? Sucking up all your grandkids inheritance. So one of the things that I did for this film is I went back and I watched another movie that was heavily retroscripted, but was also properly edited, but just did way too much. And that was the 2016 Ghostbusters film uh. where it is, it suffers from the same problem, which is what if we just let these people that we got, who we know can go off the rails on anything, well, if we just let them do that mm. in every scene. And so every scene, everybody's talking and they've edited it in such a way so that it like the editing in it is great because everybody gets their jabs in and things like that. The 
but there's just there's no low points there's no points for any jokes to hit or anything like that or in this film it's a different it's the exact opposite where no jokes actually land because everybody's all over the place when a joke happens or like the setup for a joke is so bad like when he's in Pakistan nothing makes sense and like there's voiceover that comes in this whole movie is a mess Nick Cage is a man on a mission from God we haven't gotten anywhere in this film like it's a movie that has a plot, it feels kind of aimless in the sense of, yeah, you know the point of this movie from the very first scene because it starts off of a flash forward of him in Pakistan, though we later learn it's a one of his dreams he's having. And like we know that, okay, this is about a unhinged dude who believes he gets told by God to go to Pakistan to kill bin Laden. But so much of it is just, here's another scene of Gary Faulkner doing weird abrasive shit and it kind of stumbles into a plot of sorts but mm. <laughs> so, the, the, uh, on the side of the plot maybe we'll, we'll make a little progression here. so uh uh gary faulkner is uh undergoing dialysis and has this bizarre uh the, like a the, the hallucination uh barrage of uh russell brand as god telling him that he needs to go to uh, Pakistan and uh, kill the the Russell Brand's pronunciation of... Uh, Asama? Asama. <laughs> I, I, I like when... The, uh, another, another funny thing in the movie is I like when the CIA guys uh, just refer to him as uh, OBL. Yeah. I, I like that one a lot. Yeah. So the, there's, this, there's this really jarring kind of scene where uh, he's undergoing dialysis and that Russell Brand is uh, popping up in all these places. So at first he's sort of like uh, a doctor in a crowd of people and then he appears in like a newspaper and then he appears in like a monitor and like the editing in that scene is like, it's it's a, the real assault. Like it's really crazy. And But it makes the most sense in sort of like being like, okay, here is someone who's experiencing what it's like for God to talk to you. And it's really just, you know, it, it comes from all places at once. And yet it comes from nowhere because you're alone. It is. And so you get that and then they just squander it. Like every time God's about to show up, there's an eye. There's a giant eye somewhere yeah. on screen. And it's just- oh, it's like the oranges in The Godfather. <laughs> so the, here's one th- weird thing I noticed about uh, Russell Brand. Did you notice that his forearms mm-hmm. were constantly wrapped up? but like at first I was like, oh, maybe it's just they want to cover his tattoos, but that his tattoos on his upper arm were visible. And I mean, uh, as someone who was raised in a very Roman Catholic household that like, you know, uh, stigma and stuff like that, like it's nothing to do with the forearms. It'd be on a palm of your hand. And so like, it, I don't anyone want to weigh in on that. Like, do you think they just wanted to cover up his sleeves like tattoo sleeves? I guess I I just assumed it was. You know how Peter Gabriel now dresses like, and I said this to Dan earlier, or no, I said this to somebody the other day, like a shepherd from a dystopian future. He, he, <laughs> he's got a Heaven's Gate thing happening. I felt like maybe they were just trying to do something like that. Eh. Eh. But I could also see, like, does he have sleeve tattoos? I think so. I think he does have a lot of, a lot of tattoos. You go look up Nick Cage's tattoos. Oh, no, no, no Russell Brand. Oh, oh, that. Sorry. Yeah. yeah, you're right. I got confused. Yeah. I imagine that Nick Cage probably has a lot of tattoos. Probably. So anyway, moving on. So uh, the, once once he uh, uh, is told uh, by God, a.k.a. Russell Brand, that uh, he needs to uh, go to Pakistan, as uh, Brits would say it, uh, he uh, is uh, uh, focused on uh, how he's going to get enough money to go there. And so he goes to Las Vegas and there's a really weird scene where there's Mexican cartel guys that did, like it, it. Can anyone is there an explanation for that or is that just fucking bad writing? So Nick Cage goes to uh, Las Vegas, wins a bunch of money yep. and then loses it by way of a cartel, a Colombian cartel. Uh, oh no 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 he he thought they were Colombian but then they specified they were Mexican and they were there for a tequila conference. But then I so I assumed that was them also lying about it. Oh shit. 
so he's being followed around by three guys in sunglasses the entire time in something that uh, Larry Charles does a lot, which is just have one weird, small, bald guy on scene mm-hmm. or like in the frame <laughs> at all times. It happens a lot in this film. It happens a lot in the stuff that he does. Just like one guy who looks weirdly bald. And is that person, is he suffering from something? Is he Benjamin Button? What is the reason why this guy's on scene? He's assaulted by these people. And then the next morning, his friends tell him, no, you just lost all your money at the casinos. And it's supposed to, in some ways, set up that he has these hallucinations brought on by not going to dialysis enough, which is something that is told to him later on. Is that a thing that actually happens? doesn't matter. Um, no, I'm just curious. I mean, based on what I know about dialysis, <laughs> uh, like uh, hallucinations would be the least of your concerns. Yeah, I guess. And so. I mean, uh, on a purely scientific basis, that uh, like, like going this long without your dialysis, there's no way you'd be alive. But anyways, uh, that's a minor point. Uh, so on the subject of dialysis, we have uh, Nick Cage's kidney doctor. Played by Matthew Modine. Apparently, the uh, Stranger Things money uh, wasn't as long as we thought. <laughs> uh, because it's like, yeah, that's a pretty whack role. Yeah. <laughs> like, and just like a bizarre he, encounter where yeah. he was like, Ahaha, no, I somehow found someone to marry me, but I don't have money to buy a ring. So give me $15,000. Yeah. And he's like, oh, yeah, no problem. As long as you're not going to Pakistan. It's almost like that scene was like an unintentional uh, critique on uh, like the the pay scale of Netflix. (laughs) Which is like, this motherfucker didn't make any fucking money from being papa. And uh, he's got to be in this fucking brutal movie. (laughs) (laughs) Eleven. Also, I just did a little bit of research. I'm like, oh, what could possibly be on Russell Brand's forearms that it's covered up? Oh, like in medieval style writing, it says, Lord, make me a channel of thy peace. So maybe they thought that would be too self-referential for God to have. (laughs) Yeah. So Nick Cage has found love somewhat with uh, Wendy Carlson uh, playing, what's her name? Marcy. Marcy. Who has her own tragic backstory, which is explained away in one sentence, which is her sister is a dead drug addict, gave birth to a child with CP who is also mute. So Nick Cage does a whole bunch of and like this movie is kind of two movies, which is a man coming to terms with the fact that he is a weirdo and has to settle down. And also a man who is going to leave his family repeatedly and everybody will just love him for it. You know what? That. I was getting a heavy It's a Wonderful Life vibe because in It's a Wonderful Life, there's this whole thing where if Jimmy Stewart uh, isn't a part of this woman's life, it all fucking crumbles. And in this movie, it's like this guy, he seems like a, like a, a toxic person to have in your life. And that like at one point in the film, he's like, I'm going to give up and I'm going to live with you. But like, uh, like your giving up is basically like that. This poor woman is gonna have to live with, uh, you know, a potentially schizophrenic time bomb. And so it's like it, it's interesting how there's like this uh, incredibly like the patriarchal, like sexist sort of thing. Happening. At no point in this film are we given any insight as to why all these people hover around Nick Cage's Especially character. Especially her. Especially yes. her. Nick Cage is this person who may be blessed by God, maybe blessed, overlooked by Russell Brand, that uh, he he's just kind of an asshole to everyone around him and everyone loves him for it. I yeah. kind of get it with like his friends. Maybe he's like kind of like the meme of the group or something. Yeah, he's sort of that guy. For her, she like genuinely seems to like him. For no apparent reason. Yeah. Like it's it, it's like scenes where if you tried to establish like a real relationship where one person was a real human being and the other person was the road runner. <laughs> just sort of like beep beep, I'm gonna do whatever the fuck I want and run around this thing. You're like, oh my loving husband, he does everything for this family. And the road runner is like 
you know, just dismantling part of the kitchen with his nose and like drilling holes through different things. And just like everybody seems to apologize for him before he has a chance to do it himself. So, yeah. you know, it's a funny thing about the whole uh, rotor and a coyote thing. Uh, coyotes can actually run uh, 20 miles an hour faster than a roadrunner. So uh, say goodbye to your childhood, motherfuckers. Hey, guys, it wasn't about roadrunners and coyotes. It was about that roadrunner and that coyote. It's probably lame. Uh, so the one thing I want to bring up, uh, I, I believe it is during the uh, I'm trying to win money in Las Vegas scene where uh, Nick Cage is watching uh, television and Russell Brand is on every single channel. And so there's a scene where he's on like a Larry King style show and uh, he delivers, in my opinion, the funniest line of the entire film where uh, he's like, oh, yeah, I'm releasing this 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 new book. Uh, it's called the the New Testament. You're like, oh, interesting. interesting. And like, hey, we got a We have a, a movie version in the works. Uh, we've been talking to a, a James Cameron. And so the host is like, oh, yeah, he's great. And then Russell Brand's like, he's confident. <laughs> <laughs> the 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 greatest James uh, Cameron burn ever. <laughs> well, I think of how the relationships are portrayed in this movie, namely like the people still clinging to Gary, even though he's an absolute wretched, toxic person to be around. Yeah. I got to thinking about Taxi Driver a lot. Ooh. <laughs> no, but like, good analogy. Yeah, hear me out. Good analogy. But it's like no. it feels like Taxi Driver. If Travis Bickle like was allowed in the editing room in a way that really made himself look good. How am I going to follow that up? Oh, it, it, that's it, beautiful. It, it's the best line. We should just stop the podcast right now. It's, it's like the best thing I've ever heard. It's like kind of like Taxi Driver. This movie is very uncomfortable to watch. Like if you've ever been around someone who is like has like a really deep, deeply ingrained personality disorder, like movie Gary Faulkner suffers from like Travis Bickle suffers from, but except it just uses and his best friend is named pickle. (laughs) Yeah. Like that was one thing that was never addressed that I guess people get nicknames, weird reasons. I don't know. I got called scrotum shoes in grade school, (laughs) 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 but uh, (laughs) rather than using that person's personality disorder as a way of being introspective and examining who that person is and how they relate to people. It just uses this fictional Gary Faulkner's personality disorder, like this kind of a little bit of narcissism. And I'd say a bit of borderline personality disorder as a springboard for slapstick and screwball comedy. Yeah, Gary Faulkner never wins over the audience, but plays like he has so many times. Or, or like exactly, it's it's almost like uh, the 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 omniscient force uh, constructing the film is on his side, and so it, it, it like the 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 taxi driver references is perfect because it's almost like it's the opposite of Taxi Driver, where it's like the person who is making the film. Uh, didn't realize how sick the protagonist was. And so instead of building the film around the fact that what this dude is doing is not okay, they're just like, let's give him a platform to uh, like uh, have some fun. Or, yeah, it's like, yeah, look at this idiot. Let's just make a movie yeah. about his wacky hijinks. Yeah. Exactly. But the problem I feel with this film, as opposed to other films that are like biopics, is like other other biopics uh, sort of condense characters and condense moments into lives to make them more poignant. With this, it felt like Gary just told them things that happened. They're like, all right, we'll shoot that. And because it's just like, yeah, so I went... I tried to get in Pakistan through Israel, but that didn't work. And I ended up breaking my leg and I came back here. It's like, well, if it happened, we got to shoot it. And so they do. And it's just like, it's, you know, 10 minutes of the movie that's completely wasted on this thing where it's him on a plane. And then he gets to Israel and he asks two kids, are you Israel or Palestinians? Or do you even know? And then he's just back in the United States. And there's no explanation as to how. A thousand dollars from his doctor got him to and from Israel and then to and from Pakistan again. Uh, but and then living for in Pakistan for 31 days. From a narrative perspective, uh, it's kind of like if uh, 
Akira Kurosawa let uh, Brian Williams uh, rewrite Rashomon. Guy who that was actually a pretty decent lied. joke. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> Were you trying to say Brian Wilson, or did you mean Brian Williams? What, isn't that his name? Brian Williams, the newscaster? Yeah, the, okay. the, 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 the RPG attack. <laughs> oh, that's just the, that was my highlight of the night. Just, I'm sorry, wow. I do I'm sorry. Um, that, was, that was good. I'll you. give you props thank for that. Uh, but no, like, that, like, like I mean, as well. like, uh, uh, like, I, there's something kind of fascinating about that because, like, like the it's weird when you read the Wikipedia because it's like the, it seems like no one really got their kind of head around this movie, and there's sort of like uh, the you know uh, the fleeting references to like uh, uh, Don Quixote, and it's just like that makes sense. And it's like it's very obvious that they were kind of going for that with the sword and stuff like that because mm -hmm. you know there's a lot of stuff in Don Quixote with him walking around and banging people on the head with his uh, like a uh, uh, like dull sword and everything. But like like the thing that makes Don Quixote Don Quixote is that the person writing the story is not Don Quixote, and like with this movie, it's like it's it's constructed in a way to kind of give. The, the the craziness and ridiculousness of Don Quixote, this like uh he's living this like the, the I idealistic, like insane. What if Don Quixote was written by Don Quixote? Exactly. What it would if be Don terrible. Quixote was it was given final edit uh, <laughs> on Don Quixote. And like uh The best Don Quixote film has already been done, and yeah. it's Terry Gilliam's documentary on trying to make a Don Quixote exactly. adaptation. Yeah. But um so let's move on to Nick Cage in Pakistan, Ugh. which is where I guess the I the middle third of this movie is, and kind of like the I guess maybe the last. You know, it's a funny detail uh, about this film uh, in regards to uh, them sort of like uh, specifying uh, where things are taking place from a, a geographical perspective. Is that like whenever something is in the United States, they have. Uh, like a, a little sort of intertitle, and it's in you know it's like aerial or the Helvetica, super boring sort of sans serif, and it just says Las Vegas. But when they're in Pakistan, there's this like really ornate, uh, over the top sort of font, and it says Day One, and it's like that 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 like uh like exoticizing uh like where he is. It's like like you you can't help but uh, read into the the potentially sort of like like racist implications of that that like we need to show how he's in this strange land and we're gonna make it more strange by giving you this Asian font. I know? don't even think it's that because if you watch this film, you notice that there are that it could almost start at any point of the film up until the end. There are so many starting Ooh. points to yeah. it. Interesting. There, like, there's no reason to zoom back to him in a, as a kid. There's no reason to give the flash forward to him in a uh, in a glider, which maybe probably didn't happen. I feel like that was the initial version of this film, and it was edited around that, and then they couldn't get that to work. So then they started back tracing it, and then it because it, it worked. Because again, no one had nailed down a real script for this, and so it's all retroscripted. Is all how do we make this work the best way? Didn't test well with people. Hari says we got to rework it because he's not going to get a theatrical release, mm -hmm. and so it, like it, it's it, it just has so many moments. Because so Dan, right off the top of my head, I'm going to give this movie a better plot structure. Okay, mm -hmm. here we go. So we start off with Rain Wilson's CIA character. He's in, exactly. This is exactly what yeah. I thought. And it's like, you know, there he's stationed in Islamabad. Obviously, it's leading up to the operation that would ultimately uh, get Osama bin Laden killed. A lot of stages of pre-planning. But then he and his boss hear word through the grapevine that some American national is causing shit like in and around Islamabad, waving around a sword, saying he's going to kill Islamabad, Osama bin Laden. And realize, oh, if for some reason Al-Qaeda got wind of this and took it seriously, that could screw up our operations. So they go to seek out Gary Faulkner, and that's when we start learning about Gary's story and, like, peeking into the sad and looking back in retrospect on the sad life of this crazy guy. And, like, that'd be a better spring forward, like, 
to tell this story of kind of starting in medias res from another character's perspective and then learning more about this guy who on the surface is like really dumb and weird and crazy. But as you start peeking beneath the surface is like a deeply sad, troubled person. That could have been an interesting structure for this movie. I would do something where like Rain Wilson says, before we proceed with this, we have to address uh, Operation American Samurai. And the guy goes, (laughs) did we not deal with American Samurai? He goes, no, American Samurai is still armed. Cut to Nick Cage with a sword. Dangerous. Cut to someone shooting above Nick Cage and hitting the bodyguard. Yeah. uh, And still operating as a foreign agent. And then Nick Cage making the the hot wings for people. Uh, And then you start into Gary Faulkner in Pakistan and he goes, do you know where the bearded one is? Uh, and then it turns out that like uh, the CIA also uses TBO to reference uh, Osama bin Laden, the bearded one. That's what they both call him. It's a, it's a big ironic thing. In the do- and that's why no one picked him up it was because Gary accidentally nailed that one part of it or something like that. And that's gives a little bit of a credence of Mary. Maybe Gary was from gone maybe that was the one gift gone gave him things like that but there's so many different narrative there's so many different ways they structure this narrative where there is gary telling us what who gary is there's gary talking to god and god telling gary who he is then there is the voiceover that comes over a whole bunch of times that starts off as a voiceover as if it was an actual news broadcast but then tells us things that no news broadcast would ever tell us about the character. Like, it's just, it's a complete mess of a movie where they just filmed too much and no one had any real script. No one knew what to do with this. Uh, one of my favorite parts in the film is, uh, I guess it would be, I think it's Gary's first trip to Pakistan, uh, where he's going for the, uh, uh, I'm going to hang glide into uh, Pakistan from a mountain in uh, Israel, and then uh, he falls and hurts himself. And so he returns to... Oh, sorry. Uh, he falls, and like he's talking about like Wanda Seelen and Tom Petty, and you hear the first few bars of, we couldn't get the rights to free-falling, but we've got this <laughs> knockoff song. <laughs> if we cut right before when the vocals will start to come in, people will think this is actually free-falling. I'm sorry. Continue. Oh, that that's an important detail. Thank you. Um, he says, oh yeah, uh, I'm crippled just like, uh, Marcy's daughter and a Marcy fucking zings him and says, she's a 10 year old girl who has cerebral palsy. You're a grown man who jumped off a cliff on purpose. (laughs) (laughs) And then he does say, yeah, you're right. I overstepped on that one. Yeah. The, the, Which is funny, but it didn't push anything forward. Yeah. None of these scenes matter. I also just didn't, didn't buy it because I don't think he has any self-awareness. That's a good point. I, I feel like like the there's something kind of uncomfortable about the film. Yeah. Because like the 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 narrative is kind of being dictated by like us relying on Gary as like a kind of c- credible source. But like he's clearly not. Yeah, exactly. And that, that like it like his sort of lack of self awareness is uh like pushing us in this sort of direction. I mean, it's very frustrating. So I'm sorry. No. I'm going to go back to like talking about that comparable movie, Taxi Driver, again because in Taxi Driver, even though the narration is framed from Travis's perspective, like his interactions with other people and how people react to him seem much more realistic. Yeah. Like after that scene where he brings Cybel Separage to the porn theater and uh, was it, she shoots him down for obvious reasons. And then there's like the scene where he apologized for the telephone and Scorsese like lets the camera drift as almost like the objective audience can't bear to watch this embarrassing person. But in this case, it's like the framing of everything here we are made to believe that in spite of how objectively fucked up Gary is, he's just the life of the party. Who's just like this, you know, this weird Werner Herzogian S character, just trying to live life according to his whims. And yeah. Now tell me, Dan, at the end of taxi driver, did they tack on an extra 10 minutes where everyone just 
figured out that, oh, yeah, taxi driver is okay. He's probably the best thing that's ever happened to us, and he deserves more media exposure and probably to be vindicated. Did that happen to taxi driver? Yeah, it was called John Hinckley Jr. <laughs> Whoa. Oh, Jingle we, may have Schmidt? To, we may have to cut that. <laughs> okay. Am I the only one who thought that uh, Nick Cage was basically doing his, uh, like, the dumb brother from adaptation, but in the <laughs> in the hands of a shitty director. <laughs> oh my you, god! You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. He is a Donald Kaufman. Yeah. That like the, the, it was like like him, but like if that was the case, this movie should have been better structured oh and had no voiceover. But I feel I feel like like something like this is like like it's an example of like, it's a weakness. Oh no, it's totally a weakness. But I feel like like a lot of people don't understand like like what like like a director does you know what i mean like uh, the, 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 like that like uh you know like like uh getting someone to uh you know like they shape a sort of performance in a certain way that like i mean you know is he acting as crazy as off the rails as he is in in uh, adaptation for sure but like uh like it is not shaped in a way that works with the narrative and it's interesting to see like the same actor basically flubbing uh, the, like a similar performance, you know, and that like if you look at the like Larry Charles uh, filmography that like. This is not surprising, mm. you know, that like uh, like he gives people kind of free reign and that like when sort of Sasha Baron Cohen isn't on top of his game, like it's going to fucking implode like in the dictator, you know. And so, uh, like that, I feel like Nick Cage's sort of genius is only when he's sabotaging a regular movie. And I feel like, 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 like Herzog sort of got that and that he gave him sort of like, you know, some stiffs to, uh, you know, riff on, you know, and that he gave him these sort of like, uh, situations where his preposterous, uh, uh, like completely over the top, the vaudevillian performance. Like, uh, okay, whoa, that's a harsh strike against vaudeville. <laughs> I think the problem with this is that in this uh, retroscripting sort of way, it it lends itself a lot more to yes ending. Uh, but the th the problem is with this is Nick Cage wasn't giving anybody anything that they could yes and, so they had to yes and all the extreme things that Nick Cage was saying. And that's it made the film untenable, unbelievable. Whereas before, like if he had said, like, I love you and I, I, I want to do this thing for you, but I also need to do this thing. It, maybe that could work. But he just said, I love you, but I have to go do this thing. Like, I don't love you more than I love God or anything like, like it just didn't make that understandable. They didn't pin him in. They didn't allow anybody to say no to him. Everybody had to say yes to everything that Nick Cage was doing. That, that, that I feel like that's a really interesting section because it's like, you know, uh, the, the scene that I mentioned before about uh, him with uh, Will Sasso and Paul Shear. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That like, obviously those two people are completely equipped to, you know, riff on something, but that, yeah, that like the, the Nick Cage is not uh, coming from a background of, of, improv comedy is coming from a background of being a, an A-list celebrity where he does whatever he fucking wants. And it, it's interesting to see how, uh, like coming from that sort of like, uh, the acting, uh, lineage and, uh, given that sort of like comedic freedom that like, uh, other people like can't vibe with that. Nobody and can. Even people who have been proven to be great at that, you know, like, you know, like, like they, Will Sasso is like on like uh, Mad TV and stuff like that. Like it's just like, <laughs> oh yes, that bastion. <laughs> Nick Cage is surrounded in this movie by gifted improvisers yeah. who can't do, oh, excuse me, anything with his I, performance. Can I mention like the one scene in the movie that made me laugh? Yes. And coincidentally, it was one of the few ones that didn't have Nick Cage in it. It's Rain Wilson talking with his boss in the yes. office, and he's just like talking about like the. He wants to go undercover and like the disguises he have and his, his boss is like, why do you want to keep being like Norwegian James Bond? <laughs> You're much just, too tall. It's just this brief glimpse into the life of this character who was like well-intentioned, but also like kind of like a naive idiot. 
and like, oh, I almost kind of wish they made this movie about you, this weird simpleton CIA agent. A strange thing about the end of that scene, though, is Rain Wilson says, does this make up for the five million dollars? And he goes, and at the same time, the other guy says, this doesn't make up for the five million dollars. Yeah. What was the five million dollars that was lost? I like to think that Rain Wilson and Dennis O'Hare like have worked out a backstory between those two, and then just like <laughs> we're gonna throw that in as a hint. So, I mean, guys, I don't think we have to explore this film anymore. Like it's, it's all over the place all the time. Like he has a samurai sword fight with Osama bin Laden, except not really, not really. Another one of his. So much of this movie like has such little weight. Because it's just stuff going off in his head. And it feels like a have its cake and eat it too moment. Like, we're going to show this, but it's not really real. Wink, wink. I mean, the thing that's crazy, but like I've heard of like an actor, a performance carrying a film or something like that. This is a film where Nick Cage is basically improvising for 90 minutes, mercifully 90 minutes. But it feels like he'd been doing it for probably... 30 hours like it, it just it, it it was so painful and it was only one character doing any improvising so he had to be the ridiculous guy the straight man the person who's the breadwinner he had to be everybody all at once and it absolutely didn't work i feel like uh the thing that was like the undoing of this film was someone who was trying to uh like confine the uh like just the 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 uh insanity of a Nick Cage performance into some sort of like uh like hip ironic uh, young person like sort of comedy and i feel like that it's just like it's fucking beyond that, you know? But here's the thing is you can tell Nick Cage, do whatever you want, but here are your lines. These are your marks. Do whatever you want in between those, but yeah. these are the things you have to hit. And when he does that, he's great. He's amazing. He can do a whole bunch of different characters with this. It's, hey, here's a giant sandbox play. Do whatever you want. And yeah. that's, it's miserable to watch. Exactly. Like, I think Nick Cage's sort of brilliance is that uh like dumb dumb directors don't see how he is destroying their films and that like this director thought that oh like i am going to uh like make nick cage into some sort of like uh like the self-aware ironic joke but the problem was that like the craziness in the cage was so far beyond the uh, freedom in air quotes that this guy was willing to give him. And that ultimately, like, it's just like, like Nick Cage, like he needs uh, like a, uh, the, the straight man script to destroy. Mm-hmm. And that like, you know, it's not like, like an example, I think it would be like uh, the uh, um, uh, Tim Heidecker, uh, is it the comedy? Mm-hmm. Like something like that. Where it's just like like his kind of like craziness uh, is kind of guiding the narrative, and it's just like it works for that, you know, and that like it it makes so much sense. But I f- I feel like with with Nick Cage, it's that like uh like he can't be the one uh like shaping the thing. Like he needs to be the guy who is unknowingly destroying it like that like he doesn't realize how preposterous he's acting in these movies and that's what makes him so great or like even look at like something like you know uh uh i hate to say paul feig paul feig yes paul feig the stuff that he does is again you know we need to hit like he'll let his actors go on and on and on to do whatever they want. Melissa McCarthy, uh, a lot of brides, like bridesmaids, sort of, he mm-hmm. made his mark on that. Uh, but he still said, okay, these are the marks we need to hit. And so they do, and they're emotional and they're cheesy. But it, what underpins all the rest of it, all the John Hamm just touching a boob for 
two minutes of that film is just John Hamm cupping a breast and going like, do you like this? Do you like that? And it works because you understand these characters in a way. In this, it was just John Hamm cupping a boob for 90 minutes and asking, mm-hmm. is this okay? And it wasn't okay. I think that Nick Cage has the capacity to like have very funny stuff in his performances. Like I, we've mentioned Bad Lieutenant Port of Call New Orleans. I love that movie. I love him in it. It's the closest we'll ever get to seeing him play the Joker. Uh, <laughs> but like most of the time, like he does dramatic roles that have comedic stuff in it. Even when he does pure comedy, like say the Coen brothers uh, raising Arizona, like was it the Coen brothers do not allow people to improvise. They are very specific about what is said. Like they want people to keep exactly to their scripts and like under that level of control, he can flourish as a comedic actor. He does not when he's allowed to run buck wild. So yeah, it's like the beginning and then the ending of Barton Fink. Oh yeah. Anyways, we're going to do this a different way for the ending. We're going to go me and then Michael and then Dan and then Tony for the way that we describe if we like this movie or not. Because oftentimes the end of these things are just me and Michael waxing poetically about things we didn't get to say in this. I want to see what the other side has to say. <laughs> Don't say anything yet. No, 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 no. So I will say I can't recommend this film. It is. I mean, you see a lot of things that is is trying to happen in it, but it just doesn't happen. You'd be better off watching uh, like an episode of Playing House or The League or something where they've learned to pin in actors who are able to improvise over a regular script. This is not that. I agree. I'd... I'd there's no possible way that I could recommend someone watch this. Uh, just based on the, even the most like uh, cur- cursory knowledge of uh, the director and the lead, that like uh, like anything that could have been uh, successful in this film, that uh, there's a number of examples. Uh, in uh, both the director and the 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 uh, Leeds filmography, where they just do it so much better, like it, it just like the you know you should just watch like again like the, like I mentioned before, watch adaptation. You know, like if you want to see uh, uh, um, Nicolas Cage, you know, sort of like uh, acting crazy, acting uh, off kilter, acting not like uh, sort of like. Uh, alpha male douchebag uh which is uh what he's normally cast as and fucking nailing it watch adaptation because it's handled by again like it, it, it's a brilliant script it did the, the great director and uh again like i mean like if you look at uh like larry charles like uh you know obviously the uh sasha baron cohen stuff is not for everyone but i mean you know like i mean the 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 the, the borat stuff uh like you know it has a certain charm to it in terms of like, uh, you know, uh, deceiving people in regards to, uh, you know, what is scripted, what is, uh, you know, actually, uh, you know, people being subjected to gags, whatever, whatever. So, I mean, yeah, it's just like this, this film is certainly not the uh, best version of pretty much anyone involved. Yeah, skip it. Uh if this is an hour and a half of feeling like I was trapped in the same room as a guy who thought like he was the wackiest guy around. He was the real life of a party and there was no one else around to like diffuse his attention. And so I just felt like I was trapped in there with him for an hour and a half. That's I made what it's like. Yeah. And like, that's why I made a point of breaking away for a few minutes to do dishes I should have left the movie running, but I wanted to be well-informed for this episode. Uh, And there are better movies about this type of character, someone who has like vast dreams and little sense of practicality. Uh, If you want a great example of that, uh, I recommend another Werner Herzog film. It's called Grizzly Man. Uh, So give that a whirl. But uh, it's a movie that I had no idea what army of one was trying to communicate because it felt like the child of different 
of like competing masters, like one that want to paint a portrait of this sad man and the other one that want to make him the life of the party. And oh, it was frustrating to watch. By the way, people literally die in Grizzly Man. That's how <laughs> bad this movie is by comparison. Ugh, just don't. Just <laughs> love yourself a little bit and don't watch it. I remember seeing and like Can you expand on that a little bit, please? Um like instead of watching this movie. What was the highlight for you? Um what was the best part? What was the part that you're like yeah, when, when I, I turned it to one point five. Okay, but okay. <laughs> Tony, was... Tony, here's a question. Do you like any Nicolas Cage movies? No. 